This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically for fuss-free continuous delivery. Check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgetmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 121 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Joe Liss. Hi. Do you want to introduce Thanks yourself? Thanks for having me. I'm Joe. I'm an entrepreneur, and I uh, do a lot of um, open source work in the JavaScript ecosystem. Entrepreneur, I like you better already. <laughs> Don't you do Sudoku? Is that what it is? Sudoku uh, apps? Solitaire. 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 Okay. Yeah. I knew it was a, a solitaire web app. Oh, really? You plug that. Yeah. Well, it's not. I, I'm not. <laughs> I need gobs and gobs of traffic for that. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to get visitors one at a time, but more like a thousand at a time. Sure. It's uh, it's an HTML5 solitaire, and it's completely ad monetized, and the oh, traffic cool. comes from Google. So. I, I basically need lots and lots and lots of organic traffic to make it work. Oh, I see. So you don't want us to put a link to it in our show notes so that our thousands and thousands of users can go to it? <laughs> no, we should, we should definitely put a link. It's uh, solitur.com. We'll put a link. Awesome. Well, cool. We brought you on because you put together this awesome tool called Broccoli. And I have to admit, I was getting ready to go try it out, but most of my apps are Rails, and I'm not really sure where to get started. So before we get into that, I do want to ask, what is Broccoli for those that don't know what it is and how to use it? When you make JavaScript MVC apps, what you typically do is you have a lot of JavaScript and a lot of CSS and a lot of files. And you, you're going to have several compile steps to process all these files and to concatenate them together in some way or another. And so Broccoli is a build tool that lets you define these chains of uh, compiled steps and then gives you uh, fast rebuilds. So um, it's conceptually similar to the Rails asset pipeline, except that it's not tied to uh, Ruby or Rails. I like it better already. And I'm a Rails developer. Yeah, yeah. I, I come from Rails as well. 
And I noticed way before I, I wrote Broccoli, I noticed that we were doing this weird thing where we have JavaScript and the JavaScript has nothing to do with Rails whatsoever. But what we, what we would do a lot was um, putting the JavaScript into a gem and then packaging it up for the Rails asset pipeline because the Ruby gems package manager is so great and then the asset pipeline is so great. Um, so we, we would use that. We would kind of piggyback on this existing Rails infrastructure to uh, distribute JavaScript. Of course, that's completely broken because it's, it's tied to one specific backend and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Usually what, what you're talking about is you pull in a library and the Ruby library has a vendor folder where you can put other things and, you know, other assets basically. And that's all it is. is exactly. The entire yeah. library is just putting it where Rails knows to look for it. Exactly, yeah. And yeah, that that does seem kind of broken to me as well. So how does Broccoli go about solving these problems? So I think it's probably useful to think of it as um, two separate problems. One of them is package management, which um, is still kind of not really where we want to have it on the JavaScript side. And the other part is building. And so Broccoli solves the building part. So when you have the Rails asset pipeline, uh, what you might have is the slash slash equal require calls um, that tell you how to concatenate the files. And uh, you might also have SAS, which has import statements. And so implicitly from that, you get the concatenation order. And so the Rails asset pipeline puts these compilers together and makes them run really fast. And I wanted to have something like that, except backend agnostic. So what a lot of people were doing at the time when I wrote Broccoli, what, I, what a lot of people are still doing is writing out build steps with Grunt. And so the problem with that is what tends to happen is in practice, as you add more and more files, the build gets slower and slower. So uh, it's not unusual at all to see like 15, 20 second rebuild times. And so then you want to be you go, okay, this is too slow. Every time I edit something, I need to wait 20 seconds till I reload it in the browser. And, and you try to do, you try to do partial rebuilds where you are smart about what you rebuild. But Grunt was never designed to do this reliably. So, for example, if you edit one CSS file, you might, one SAS file, you might have to rebuild another SAS file because it includes the first SAS file. And so you, you have to know which parts you need to rebuild and which parts you can reuse from last time. And just if you wire together a build definition with Grunt, it's not going to do that. Grunt definitions are basically glorified shell scripts. And so what I think we need is a dedicated build tool that plugs into something like Grunt, into a task runner. And Broccoli is, is one such tool that provides the core build pipeline for the part of your process where you have a bunch of input files and uh, libraries, and then you run compilers and you then you get a directory full of output files. So for this kind of frequent rebuild process, that's what Broccoli is for. So it's explicitly only for the build process. It's not a, gen a generic task runner. Is that not correct? at all. Yeah, exactly. So okay. something like deployment or um, generators or uh, kicking off tests, that kind of stuff that definitely lives in Grunt. So I know when Broccoli first came out, it was compared a lot to Grunt and also to Gulp. And you're saying that it's not really a fair comparison because it could work alongside either of those tools or a totally different tool. So it competes with Gulp, actually. Um, Gulp is another build tool. 
And I've, I've written a blog post about like why I think broccoli has the right quote unquote architecture, but it, it definitely is not, it is complementary to grunt. So it doesn't seek to replace it. Awesome. Okay, that makes sense. So you, you did mention the different frameworks, for example, you know, you have angular number and knockout and backbone. Does it take anything special to run your build steps or does it just work out of the box with those because they're just JavaScript? Typically, if you, if you just take broccoli core, what you find is you have a completely empty canvas and you then go, okay, like how do I assemble all these compilers that will put my files together? So what you need for a complete build stack is actually not just broccoli. Broccoli is just the framework sitting at the bottom, but you need a set of compilers like mm. something that concatenates JavaScript, something that compiles SAS, maybe um, a CoffeeScript compiler, a uh, template compiler, um, that kind of stuff. So if you write a build definition for an average app, it actually turns out, turns out to be quite a lot of steps. Um, so it's not unusual to have like, let's say, 100, 150 lines of code in your uh, build definition file. And that's kind of asking people to write these build definitions from scratch every time they want to make an app seems a bit excessive. Like it's, it's too complex. The learning curve is too steep. And so something that we are trying in the Ember ecosystem is to make a default stack of compilers on top of Broccoli so that you can say Ember new to do MVC and you get a to do MVC app with an existing build definition that you then can tweak but you don't have to, you don't, there's no need to reinvent the complete process from scratch. And it's, so that's con conceptually quite similar to how Rails works, right? Mm -hmm. How Rails new my app works. It just gives you all this code that you can use to get started immediately. And the um, Rails asset pipeline is immediately functional. It has several compilers. It comes preloaded with uh, several compilers. And so, what I think we're going to see and I what I would like to see more of is these uh, default stacks like Ember CLI that give you a uh, complete stack, a complete stack of compile steps without having to do anything. Very nice. I, I kind of want to change gears back to something we were talking about before. You said that if you just change one file here or one file there, um, you don't have to rebuild all of your assets. Is that what I heard? Is that Did I hear that right? Yeah. So so how does that work exactly? Traditionally, the way this has been done is with tools like Make and most build tools since then, they all try to do the same thing. The way it works is you specify your output files and then you specify which files these output files depend on. And if you have multiple build steps in, in sequence, you're going to specify these intermediate files and then specify what those depend on. So you, you're kind of building the, this graph of file dependencies. And then when you change an input file, you know exactly which part of the graph to rebuild. And, and, and make is, make is completely based around comparing which file is newer, right? So when, whenever an, an input file is newer than an output file, it will rebuild it. But this turns out to be kind of hard because getting these dependency graphs right because they are very complex and it's very easy to have a subtle bug in there and so then if there's a, if you get the graph slightly wrong your build will become unreliable and this is what a lot of the time people just type make clean all the time to force a complete rebuild <laughs> yep 
Just wipe it all out. I don't know what's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. Because you don't you don't trust the system, right? Yeah. And another problem is that the dependencies are not known ahead of time oftentimes. So, for example, in a C file, you might have include statements at the top, include directives. Or in a CSS file, to stick with the web, you might have import statements. And actually, you only find out about the dependencies at build time. And, and so with uh, make-type tools, people resort to all kinds of um, strange hacks to make that work. Um, and the third problem is it doesn't really take care of cleaning up intermediate files. And when you delete an input file, the corresponding output file doesn't get deleted. And that's not an academic edge case. That's really, really important because every time you switch branches, probably some file is going to be deleted or moved around. And so tools like Make are notoriously bad at cleaning up the kind of leftover output files from previous builds. It seems like a lot of the the tools in the web, you know, like you mentioned SAS or uh, Compass or Stylus, a lot of these have their own require, so to speak, their own way of locating dependencies. Correct. And consequently, I guess I'm wondering, can Broccoli do anything about those tools forcing themselves on you in terms of how dependencies are located? Because I don't know how you could do a partial build if you're not in control of the compile step. Does Broccoli have a solution for that, or is that just something that needs to change in the ecosystem? Yes and yes. For some compilers, like CoffeeScript, you can obviously express the dependency very easily. So there's nothing complicated about that. You know exactly when to rebuild. But like you said, for something like SAS or Compass, it's harder. And there have been, let me tell you, there's a set of solutions to this. Um, and each of them has its own drawbacks, and but all of them are possible with Broccoli. So what the Rails asset pipeline does is with uh, SAS, every time you uh, include, you import a file, SAS will give the asset pipeline a callback. And so the, the asset pipeline, as a result, knows what the um, SAS file depends on. Of course, that only works because the asset pipeline and SAS are both written in Ruby. So Broccoli is written in uh, JavaScript. It runs on Node. And a lot of compilers are written in JavaScript these days. But it seems that the approach is a bit unsatisfactory. Another way the Rails asset pipeline does it is... So, for example, to compile something like less, which is the less uh, CSS compiler is written in JavaScript. And so you cannot get the callback. And so the uh, less Rails plugin for the asset pipeline, what it does is it uses a regex to parse out the imports ahead of time. And of course, like, it seems like a really terrible. Yes, it seems yeah. like a really terrible hack, right? Um, and I, I think that should tell us some, something that there is a problem with the asset pipeline's requirement to know all the dependencies. Um, and so uh, with Broccoli, the way it works is a compiler plugin just takes a um, set of input files, like a, a tree of files, a directory, and it emits an output directory. And oftentimes the output directory will just contain one single output file. And the plugin itself is then responsible for figuring out when to rebuild. Like, it should be smart about whether to rebuild at all and when it rebuilds, how much to rebuild. And you could easily think about, if you have something like SAS or less, you could easily think about wrapping it 
in some code that does the same thing that the Rails asset pipeline does. Like it figures out the dependencies through a callback or th through a regex. And then whenever those change, it will rebuild. And if they, if they don't change, if they haven't changed since the last build, it will just reuse the output directory from last time. But I think there is a, there, there would be a, a better approach to do this. And that requires kind of buy-in from compiler authors. Let me, let me back up a step. When you recompile a um, SAS project, a SAS file, generally the performance is going to be, the time it takes is going to be linear with the number of input files. So if you have 10 input files, it might take one second. And if you have 50 input files, it might take five seconds. So on a typical size project, you very, very quickly get into performance territory where it's just too slow for the kind of continuous rebuilding that you want as a developer. So I think what will probably have to happen is that compilers like SAS start caching parts of their compile steps. So if you have 50 input files and um, you run SAS once, then it will compile everything. But when you run it a second time and only one of these files has changed, it will detect that 49 files still have the same timestamp and it will reuse a lot of the intermediate data structures like the parse tree, um, the AST from last time. So if we do something like that, we get the rebuild time from big O of N from linear with the number of input files to constant time. Basically, if only one file has changed, then we're going to take a constant time to rebuild the entire project, no matter how big it is. And I think that's something that from a performance perspective and from a usability perspective is really, really crucial. And once we have that, it kind of extends to the case where no file has changed. So if the compiler were to do caching anyway, then it could just detect that um, no file has changed and reuse the complete build output from last time. And that way, we don't have to try and replicate the dependency graph outside the compiler, but all the complexity of figuring out which de files depend on which other files is contained to within the compiler. So I've kind of tried to evangelize um, about this a little bit with uh, compiler authors. And what I generally seem to get is like a vague, yeah, that seems like it might actually be necessary, but it's not completely clear that we want it. So like, of course, like we're, we're going to need to see code um, to figure out if this is really the, the best approach and, and what kind of pitfalls we're going to encounter. But um, I've, I've seen, I haven't gotten terrible pushback on, on that idea. So just from you talking about that, it sounds like a lot of it depends on other people to implement features in the compilers. Is that a good summary of it? In a way, yes. What we can always do, of course, if we just want a compiler, getting a compiler running today, is put in these kinds of stopgap measures where we parse out the imports or um, some other approach that um, Robert Jackson has implemented in several plugins is, um, and there, there is a common base class for that, that takes away all the complexity behind that, is if you pass a tree of files into the compiler, if none of the files have changed, then we just do not kick off the compiler again. 
So if you are careful only to only pass your SAS files into the SAS compiler and no JavaScript files, then if you change the JavaScript files, which live in a separate directory, the SAS compiler will not run again. So these kinds of, we can always replicate the kind of kludges that other system systems implement. You can always express these on top of the uh, Broccoli architecture. But I think importantly, Broccoli allows you to push all of this logic down into the compiler, which I think in the end is where we want it to live. That's my hypothesis anyway. Sure, that makes sense. Does this work with, you know, when you're doing things with, say, SAS, where the compiler is written in Ruby and not in JavaScript, does that affect things at all? Broccoli is was um, intentionally written to just use the file system. So you can just um, call into Ruby and you can just kick off a Ruby process. Okay. It's obviously going to be a little bit slow. So that's, there's always performance problems when you hand off to a completely different language. But this is actually kind of, this has come in very useful for native libraries like libsass. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of libsass. Um, it's a C re-implementation, a C++ re-implementation of SAS. And so in my, in my benchmark, it was um, basically 10 times faster than Ruby SAS. So on a data set where Ruby SAS would take two to five seconds on like a typical app sized file, where Ruby SAS would take two to five seconds, uh, libsass would take 200 milliseconds. It's just shocking, honestly. <laughs> yes, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And so seeing that kind of difference made me kind of appreciate that it may not always be sensible to um, implement stuff in Ruby or JavaScript because having delays like two or two to five seconds in your, in your build, in your rebuild is clearly quite painful. So, um, and 200 milliseconds is just barely noticeable. So libsass seems really, really awesome. It's unfortunately not quite a replacement for Ruby sass yet. And uh, we also don't have a um, sort of native replacement for Compass yet. But just from the performance difference alone, it's, I think it made me appreciate how important it is to support native libraries. And Broccoli has no problem at all calling into libsass through a node wrapper and just having that run against the files and the file system. So I, I want to talk a little bit about implementation here. If I wanted to get started with Broccoli, say on a project with uh, Express or Rails or something, um, how would I go about doing that? Do I just put all my assets in the same folder and install the plugins and then say, go do your thing with those? Or Sort of, yes. But the problem is that you would have to assemble the entire build pipeline yourself. Mm-hmm. So let's say CoffeeScript and SAS and then the uh, slash slash equal require things and stuff like that. And then you have a vendor directory. So there's a bunch of things that that you would, and then maybe a pub, public directory with an HTML, with an HTML, HTML file in it. So there's a bunch of things that kind of come together. And, uh, to replace Rails projects in particular, we are missing the, a, a broccoli plugin for a sprockets type require directive parser. And it's kind of this on like on my list of things that I would really like to write. Uh, and it's not terribly hard. But uh, I haven't gotten around to it, and I don't think anyone else has gotten around to it so far. So there's there's no way to just parse out the uh, slash slash equal require calls with uh, broccoli at the moment, which is kind of a bummer. 
But uh, once we have that kind of compiler, what I would like to maybe do is provide a at least like a sample block file, a sample build definition to uh, show this is how you would take a Rails project and then basically just build the same thing using Broccoli without calling Rails. What about something that's not Rails that doesn't have all the weird directives and stuff for the uh, asset pipeline? So you're typically going to have something, right? Like, how are you going to concatenate your JavaScript files? Yeah, so usually, Chuck, you might pick common JS, or you might pick AMD, or right. something like those, and then you'd use the corresponding Broccoli plugin to do the tracing and concatenation. Yep. Makes sense to me. Is it painful at all to hook that up, to use the correct uh, plugin? She probably is biased, but I would say it's no harder than it is in Grunts or, or uh, Goldberg or any of the other ones. That's good to hear. <laughs> I'm I'm not a good judge because I know broccoli. I, I like I I know it so well that it's right. It's it's hard for me to judge how sure. how hard the onboarding is. Have you talked about the server versus the output directory context thing that that broccoli does? Because that's something that makes it rather unique. Does it actually? Uh, so I th the way I think about it is it's just the equivalent of um, Rails serve and Rails precompile. So I suppose if you're not coming from Rails and you're coming from Grunt or Gulp is an interesting piece, or even Make. But what it is is Broccoli has the ability to either take its you know its input and its output and put it directly to an output file like a build, or it can actually serve it up as a web server that will compile on the fly that you can just link to. Yep. Which is really cool. And this might seem like a small detail, but um, something that I was very careful about was making sure that the way broccoli build and broccoli serve, meaning like the one-off build, the one-off pre-compilation -compil pre and the um, continuous serving, these two builds use exactly the same code path. So when you serve, it's just that the same process gets called over and over again, but it's still the same thing. And the reason why that is important is if you have different code paths for serving and for pre-compilation, What's going to happen is that your app works great locally and then you deploy and stuff breaks. And that actually happens all the time on Heroku. Apparently, like 50% of their support requests are about the Rails asset pipeline, about like wow. oh pre-compilation issues. <laughs> wow. I really love that. That's crazy. So you talked a little bit how Make leverages timestamps to do the incremental build and how Make is notoriously bad for switching branches because it can't handle file deletes and additions properly. How does Broccoli solve that problem? The way Broccoli thinks about it is, if you have one plugin, let's say a uh, CoffeeScript compiler that takes a um, directory full of files of what whatever file type, including some .coffee files. So the CoffeeScript compiler is going to pass through all the files and the .coffee files, it's going to compile and turn into .js files. So what's going to happen is the CoffeeScript plugin remembers the timestamps and the sizes of the input coffee files. And then while it runs, it also puts the output of the CoffeeScript compiler into a cache. And next time it runs, it just checks the last modified times and the sizes of each file. And if it exists in the cache, it gets pulled out of the cache. And so the, the actual CoffeeScript compiler doesn't get invoked. 
It just is an instantaneous operation where it pulls everything out of the cache. And so that kind of works around a lot of the issues. Like if a file gets deleted, of course it doesn't, it's not going to appear in the output again um, because we don't try to rebuild it. If a file, if a timestamp uh, jumps back in time, then we're not going to get confused, but we're going to detect that the timestamp is older now and we still need to rebuild. So this approach is a lot more robust against a lot of these kind of edge cases that cause make to have problems. And in particular, one way to think about it is that we just infer file identity from the combination of path, uh, last modified time, and file size. But we're not doing any other kind of time comparison logic like make does. It's just a shortcut. Um, we could also just uh, MD5 hash the files and uh, get the same result. Got it. Very cool. I'm curious, do you have kind of a future direction you intend to take Broccoli? Are there things you want to add to it? So there are some changes to the um, plugin API coming up. There's actually two refactorings. Um, one of them is going to come very soon, and the other one is maybe two or three months off or something like that. And that's kind of that kind of comes with that being pre 1.0, I guess. So it's basically what what's happening right now is fixing some performance issues and cleaning up some of the API that we that we are exposing. Uh, while we still can, while while it's still easy, before there is an, a huge uh, number of applications being built on top of it. And then beyond that, like I said earlier, I think uh, I'm hoping that a decent amount of improvements in terms of how we are smart about rebuilding is going to happen in the compilers, actually, and not in Broccoli. But I'm sure we'll also have some more um, base classes for Broccoli plugin that implement all kinds of caching. And I think beyond that, Broccoli is basically done. It's a very simple piece of software. Uh, it's less than a thousand lines of code. And what I what I really want to see is default stacks like Ember CLI that are based on Broccoli, but so you don't, as a user, you don't have to think about Broccoli anymore. It just works. One thing that just occurred to me too, um, does Broccoli play nicely with package managers like Bower and CDNs? So that's actually playing together with package managers is one of the original use cases because something that, that was very obviously missing from the JavaScript ecosystem and that is still missing is um, the ability to say this piece of code depends on another piece of code on another package. So I'm going to add this package to my like package.json or something and it gets pulled in and then I can just call require at the top of my file or import and I can use it in my code immediately. And what we're doing at the moment is just dropping stuff into vendor directories, which is pretty terrible. So there's kind of two parts to that problem. One of them is we have to have a distribution mechanism for browser-side JavaScript and uh, CSS as well, and images maybe. So that's a package manager. So Bower is, I think, the most promising one at the moment. Some people are talking about uh, and using NPM for browser-side JavaScript, and that's maybe an option as well. But I, I'm feeling fairly positive about Bower. So the problem with Bower is, or not problem, but just like this, where the scope of Bower ends is it just gives you a, a set of files. When you depend on a package, it just says, okay, here are your files. Now do whatever you want with them. And you have to figure it out yourself. 
um, how you're going to include them. And um, JavaScript until now hasn't had a way to require other files. And so we built these two, these systems like AMD or CommonJS on top of it to kind of add require calls after the fact. And this is kind of the part where the build step comes in because being able to distribute packages and express dependencies between packages is useless until you can also in your JavaScript code express which files you depend on specifically and import things from other files. And so the one thing that I'm really, really excited about is the ES6 module syntax. And my general idea of what I want to happen is I want there to be a default stack um, based on Broccoli that uses the ES6 module system and parses out the ES6 import statements. And then that is going to be backed by Bower. So if you import something, it will automatically search through all the libraries that you have pulled in via Bower. And that is kind of like my long-term idea of where I would like things to be. And I, I'm not set on like the specific tools, but I think this is something we definitely want to make JavaScript great. It's basically, we want to have the same experience that we have with uh, something like Ruby, where adding a, a dependency on another package is just, I'm going to add this line to my gem file. I'm going to reinstall the gems. And then I'm going to say, require some module in my code. And uh, it's going to be available. And I, I want that to happen in JavaScript land. So I think, I think to kind of summarize that, what I want is something sitting on top of Broccoli, like a default build stack that automatically pulls in files from Bower, etc., that uses the ES6 module system specifically. Cool. Do you know anything about the ETA for that? I mean, as the spec is still, it's kind of in the final stages of being worked on, if I understand correctly. Is this something yeah. you can actually start building towards right now, or are you waiting for things to settle down a little bit? Yes and yes. So there was a recent change in the ES6 uh, module syntax, and I think it is probably not completely stable. I suspect that there might be still a few changes coming in, minor changes maybe. Um, so it's it's definitely still a draft. And the transpiler from ES6 modules into ES5 is still, I don't know if it's alpha or beta, but it, it was just rewritten. Um, I think Brian Donovan did it. And so it it looks much better now. It's much um, It covers edge cases much better, but it is probably the transpilation step probably still has problems here and there where things don't, where the semantics don't map completely um, correctly. Um, so that is, that is something that definitely still needs to stabilize. Um, the reason why I'm so excited though about the ES6 module syntax is that it's, is that it's static. So unlike AMD or CommonJS, you can do static analysis on JavaScript files and you know which files they import. It's not possible to kind of import a variable module or something. And so being able to statically parse out imports um, and then based on that, being able to figure out which files you need to concatenate, that's a huge, hugely important feature. And so I, I think the ES6 module syntax is definitely, um, and it, it has other, other features as well, but in terms of building, that is like one of the really important ones, the fact that it's completely static. But still, that part is is still, I think it's basically alpha. And another part 
to make that happen is uh, Bauer needs to get better. So there, I think there are a bunch of cases that Bauer just doesn't cover very well, um, that we're kind of used from something like Bundler on Ruby. Um, and that's because Bundler is a pretty complex piece of software and it does a lot of things really great and no one has gotten around to implementing them for Bauer. And something that is missing from Bauer is the ability to say, okay, so here's my package, but if you include an ES6 JavaScript file, this is the directory that you should be looking in, like the lib directory, it's usually. So there's nothing in Bauer or on top of Bauer that gives us the ability to communicate. When you want to include files, JavaScript files from this package, please look in inside this subdirectory. Um, so we're, we're still going to need to add these kinds of things. It seems very trivial, but it all needs to be spec'd out. We always need to think about all kinds of edge cases and how to, how to implement it the right way. So those pieces are missing as well. And I think those are the two, two big things that really need to be worked on. So the, the Bauer part, because it, because we don't have a way to, um, say, look inside the lib directory to pick up source files, the Bauer part is basically unusable right now. And we're still, we still have to resort to manually linking up files rather than, um, having them automatically picked up when you import them. And we're not, we're not terribly far away from it, but I don't know that anyone is working on it at all, at all right now. So I would really like that to happen, but I don't have an ETA, um, simply because I'm not working on it. I don't, I don't know if anyone is. And the, the ES6 module stuff, I think it, that's going to shape up over the coming year, maybe. It's just going to incrementally stabilize as people start using Ember CLI, which uses the uh, ES6 module system. People are going to discover bugs and we are going to iterate on the on the spec. So I wanted to ask, go on a tangent and ask about the uptake of Broccoli in the community. It seems like it's been embraced as kind of the default build tool by the Ember community. Are, is that true? And then how is it being used in, in other places? Yeah, I think right now the uptake is mostly in the most of it seems to have been in the Ember community um, via Ember CLI specifically. There are some people doing using it for like their custom build steps for their apps, and uh, some libraries are being built with it, which I think is is another very important use case. But uh, most of the existing users seem to come from Ember CLI. They use it. They use Broccoli through Ember CLI. And that is really the way I envision Broccoli being picked up. I don't, as I said earlier, I don't want people to write build definitions from scratch. I think the learning curve for that is way too, way too steep. But the, in the same way, the Rails asset pipeline, nobody ever uses it on its own. Like the Sprockets gem, I think, theoretically. <laughs> That's true. Could, yeah. You could use it. Gem install Sprockets into some no, exactly. Ruby project. Right? Yeah. So the only way that ever gets used is through Rails. And so what I would like to see is to have an Ember default stack based on Broccoli and an Angular default stack based on Broccoli and a Knockout default stack and maybe a Rails asset pipeline replacement stack. So to, to have these kind of sets of compilers um, where you just say, okay, I want, this is the general format of my app. Now give me a set of compilers. And then I think that's, like that's how um, broccoli is really going to get get um, adopted, not um, directly, but through these stacks. 
and then no, nobody even cares anymore that they're using broccoli. That's just what happens under the hood. So once you have these build steps set up, and you've got you know you know, got things figured out that way, well, what are kind of the next steps? What are, what are the other things, or are there other things that you need to be doing or thinking about related to this? Uh, you mean when you write an app? Yeah. Not really. I don't think so. I mean, as far as broccoli is concerned, that's all it is. Obviously, something the all the other parts to writing an app, like connecting it with the backend and maybe serving both of them from the same server, and uh, deployment and um, scaffolding, like you want to generate new controllers or stuff like that. All of these things they still need to happen, and that's all that. Those are all things that people are thinking about with Ember CLI. Like um, those are being added there. And I think those are generally useful for other projects as well. So as far as Broccoli concerned, Broccoli doesn't care about anything beyond the build, beyond the core build um, process. But these default stacks are definitely going to have more functionality um, for deployment, scaffolding, testing, etc. Are you accepting contributions to Broccoli? Yeah, I am. I haven't been terribly good about keeping up with GitHub because uh, I'm mostly just, when I spend time on Broccoli, I think the most important thing right now is that I can do is pushing the refactorings forward and making sure that happens and that the APIs look nice. And then most of the time, what I want people to do is just to plug into the APIs. So I've been saying no to a lot of contributions. Basically, the the standard re- response is, please turn this into an external plugin or an external library. I don't want this in Broccoli Core. I don't want Broccoli Core to be um, terribly configurable at all because it's really just... Um, Broccoli Core is really just... Uh, the, the, the Broccoli command line tool is just one way to kick off Broccoli. And in general, people are going to be using Broccoli as a library from their own tools and they're going to like provide their own servers and their own watchers, etc. So Broccoli itself is incredibly an incredibly thin piece of software. It basically just provides the general architecture, the opinionatedness about the, not even that, the just the, the way the compilers go together and then everything else happens outside of Broccoli. So I guess the answer is yes and no. Um, like Definitely, I, I take patches for Broccoli and for um, a lot of the plugins that I maintain. But also a lot of the time, uh, many things can be done outside of Broccoli. So if I wanted to write a Broccoli plugin, say, for Rails, so that I could get the, you know, slash slash equals require or whatever to work, where would I get started? Um, I think you would pick a base class. Um, in this case, you would pick the Broccoli Writer base class and then subclass that to write your plugin and I think what people do most of the time is they look in it at an existing plugin. Um, so in your case, if you wanted to write something that parses out slash slash equals require, you would look at the SAS plugin because that's kind of conceptually similar. It takes mm-hmm. multiple files and outputs one single file and look at how that is implemented. And uh, the uh, API that Broccoli or that the base class you inherit from then exposes to you is is very small it's basically just here's your output uh, your input directory here's your output directory now uh, do whatever you want and then you just do file system operations 
And so the tricky part is usually when you write a plugin is usually getting it to be fast. But that's up to you. And if you don't want, if you don't want it to be fast, if you just care about getting it working at all, you don't have to be. You can just make a plugin that naively recompiles everything every time. And it's going to slow down your build, but it's not, Broccoli is not going to stop you from doing that. So if you are willing to sacrifice performance just to get started, it degrades very nicely into an incredibly simple subcase. Cool. I'm kind of excited to go play with it now. So this isn't related to Broccoli. I just wanted to say I think you're super cool. I follow you on Twitter, and it's fun to see you start wondering about a field. Like, I saw the tweets that were like, build tools aren't very good. I wonder what a good one would look like. And then you start talking about an API, and then suddenly you have this awesome tool called Broccoli. <laughs> so I don't know. Thank I just, you. It's really inspiring to see you create amazing things kind of in the public eye. Yeah. As I write software, I try to kind of be mindful about improving the tools that I use to write software. So I, I try to spend about, let's say, 50% of my time just iterating on underlying tooling, like the libraries, the uh, build tool in this case, whatever is involved in the development process, whatever makes me more productive. So, so broccoli kind of fits, fits into that theme. And I actually, I ended up taking several months off to write broccoli. It, it took longer than I thought. I thought I would be done. I thought I would have the first beta out after a month and it took four, <laughs> but uh, it, it was still worth it. It was still okay. And so when I allocate time, I try to very actively make time to work on tooling, to work on libraries. That That's is a really such cool philosophy. a good idea. That is also very selfless of you. <laughs> <laughs> the only other question I, I can see here is, do you see this tool being used to build things other than web assets? So, for example, uh, mobile apps or, you know, other things that have a build step to them. You know, C programs. Do you see it calling out to the GCC compiler? I think the, the architecture is, if I were to write a build tool for anything, for any other environment, I would reuse the architecture. So the, the, the architecture that exists in that environment or? No, sorry, the, the broccoli architecture. Okay. So the, the idea that a build process is just a series of tree transformations. And I'm actually going to link a, a slide that I had in one of the, in one of my talks um, that illustrates the kind of graph nature of these uh, tree transformations. That's really the core piece, the core insight of the, of broccoli and the, the notion that everything that makes the build fast needs to happen in each individual step. You don't have any kind of global dependency graph that spans the individual build steps. And so, so this kind of, I would probably take this kind of insight and try to apply it to other environments. Now, Broccoli itself is written in Node, and there is no reason why you would uh, write something in another, in like, let's say, f to compile iOS apps. You wouldn't use Node for that. It's maybe a little bit too slow, and also people just don't have it installed. So you... You wouldn't use Node, and there are probably some things about Broccoli that are kind of specific to the web. Like, I'm making some assumptions about the kind of numbers of files and the file sizes that we're moving around. Like, in a web app, you have an inherent limit on the number of, 
on the size of your app because you can only serve out so much, right? You have like 400, 500 kilobyte budget for your app or maybe, I don't know, a, a megabyte with images or two for a page. And that's all you can do. And for C++ projects, you can have much, much more input files, much more intermediate files. So you have these uh, hundreds of megabytes of build products flying around. And I'm not 100% sure if Broccoli would uh, hold up well with uh, something like that, or if you would run into into issues where um, things are too slow or things take up too much space. So in particular, while I wrote Broccoli, I always had like a worst case scenario in mind of like, I need to be able to process a few thousand files. I need to be able to process tens of megabytes. And with other environments, you might have an order of magnitude more data. And uh, so uh, Broccoli might might not be up to that. But I think the, the general architecture probably would. Cool. My, yeah. my mind is spinning. Yeah, it's been awesome. Joe actually asked an interesting question in the chat. Why did you call it Broccoli? So the way I came up with it was it's an acronym for Browser Compilation Library. And I felt very smart about that. <laughs> but um, No one can spell just... broccoli? No. Oh, no. <laughs> I, found, I found out that no one can spell it. I, like, I wasn't sure. Like, it, it, it didn't seem hard to spell to me. But I can see that like, the, the like, double C and the single L, like, it, tri- it totally trips people up. So I think in, in retrospect, I would have picked another name if I had known that. Like when it got posted on Hacker News, so many people complained that they cannot spell the name. <laughs> so, that's, that's hilarious. I would be lying if I said I didn't fall into that group of people. I, well, no, look at it this way. Broccoli has taught you how to spell better in addition to building your code. Boosh! Good point, dude. <laughs> With the next tool, we're going to practice cauliflower. That <laughs> <laughs> is also uh, I love it. Instead Jameson, what are your picks? I got two. One is an article by Raquel Velez. She's been on the show to talk about robotics. And um, it's talking about diversity and how some people talk about trying to hire diverse candidates as kind of a needle in a haystack problem where they can't find anyone, kind of all the people that apply or that they have in their networks aren't, are, are just kind of look like everyone else. And she talks about it more as a network problem where you don't need to find the one mythical diverse person that will apply to your job. You need to form connections with people, and then that will introduce you to a network of people. Um, and it's just an, an idea about it I haven't heard before. It's a really good read, and it's pretty short. Uh, my next pick is a website called hexascii.com, and it's my one-stop shop for all the best Japanese emoticons. That's all you need to know. Nice, nice. Yeah, if you need to express surprise that a bear is behind you, just in 100% text as an emoticon, they've got you covered. Vital. Very nice. Including just the in bear. Case. Yep. All right, uh, Merrick, what are your picks? So I have two picks. The first one is an iOS app called Reporter, and all it does is it lets you set up taxonomies of questions. So you can you can set up a question and say which type of taxonomy the answer is going to be in, and you can just answer these questions. It'll notify you randomly the number of times you request over a time frame. So for example, I've been charting things that are 
typically kind of hard to chart, things that are more subjective, like my emotions or uh, who I'm spending time with. And uh, it's been pretty cool. It's been pretty interesting just to see my life or these things that are historically hard to measure over time. And the other thing is a rapper named Trip Lee and his album, The Good Life. I highly recommend it. That's it. Those are my two. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? So I've got three picks. The first one is Big O Notation. Since Joe was talking about Big O Notation in this uh, episode, I can't remember the last time anybody discussed Big O Notation or mentioned it at all in one of these podcasts. And I think it's awesome that it was mentioned. It made me feel a lot smarter to be on a podcast that had Big O Notation mentioned. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick Big O Notation. <laughs> if you don't know what it is, Google it. It's awesome. Or ask Joe. That's how I learned about it. Right, right. I'll be giving a master class on Big O Notation later on this week. <laughs> the, the week after, we'll explain what recursion is, right? Right. <laughs> My next pick is going to be the company Pluralsight's new office. They just had the ribbon cutting ceremony for this new office that they built uh, here locally in Utah, and I went out to the uh, opening for it. And it is an amazing office. It's way cool. And the best part about it is they have an entire shelf that's just stocked with candy. And so when you bring your kids over to dad's, to some work function with dad, the fact that there's candy there makes things so much better. You sound like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I am. Um, the other thing that was really cool that they did is they installed this like sound deadening system so that they could have a mostly open office with not like cube farms, but just desks out. But there's a sound deadening system that makes it so that you don't hear all it's not echoey and chattery you know people can have, be having conversations just a desk away and they don't interrupt you in your conversations so i thought that was really pretty smart as well and very cool they have like in the center they have these little rooms where you can go in just to chill out they're small they only fit one person there's like a nice chair so you can go in there and take a nap they're like kind of dimmed and you can go take a nap or just chill out if you need some time because you're a programmer and you're an introvert, which I thought was totally awesome as well. So cool office. I'm going to pick their office as my second pick. And then my final pick, on the car ride home, just before I showed up late to this episode, I finished reading, not while I was driving, I was not driving. I finished reading the book Tribes by Seth Godin. It's an awesome book. It's called Tribes, We Need You to Lead Us. And it's just about being a leader even if you're not necessarily a manager. And whether that's at work or elsewhere in your life, very motivational book, really great, awesome read. And I t really enjoyed it. So I'm going to pick Tribes as my final pick. Awesome. Uh, I've got a handful of picks here. I actually have more picks than I have time for, so I'll have to, I'll have to save them up and share them for next time. But uh, uh, a couple that I've, I've got here, one of them is a command line tool. It's called Cowsay. If you don't know what it is, you can go install it on most systems. I'm on a Mac, so I just did brew install cowsay. And what it does is it puts out a little cow that says whatever you told it to say. My second pick is a, a command line utility, and basically it's called Zicky. And what it is is it's, I use it inside of Emacs, and so it's all interactive and stuff. And uh, it does have its own shell that makes it interactive. And so you can run commands from it just inside of the shell. And it's it's basically like a menu system on the command line. I, it's really hard to explain without showing people. If you go to ziki.org, uh, you can check it out. There's some videos there that explain what it is and how it works. Um, and that's X-I-K-I. -I. 
Another pick I have, and this is something I've been doing recently. It's part of the Miracle Morning, which I picked before. Um, it's it's just keeping a journal. It really helps me kind of think through things and figure out what I want to be doing and how I want to uh, be involved with things and stuff like that. You know, so I wind up writing down goals and things, and it helps me process the stuff that's going on in my life. And so I, I really, really like it. And finally, I'm going to pick something that Aaron picked a few weeks ago. It's The Martian. It's a novel by Andy Weir. Um, I listened to it on Audible, and it was really good. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of this, kind of like MacGyver on Mars. He gets stranded on Mars, and so he's got to figure out how to survive long enough to get rescued. So uh, anyway, pretty cool stuff. So those are my picks. Joe, the other Joe, the guest Joe, what are your picks? So I have two picks for today. Uh, the first one is a book called Creativity, Inc. by... Uh, the, the, the Pixar guy, yes. He was one of the founders of Pixar and is, I think, now the president of uh, Disney. John Catmull. There you go. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's a management book as well, kind of about like, here are the things that they discovered that, that are important to make people work creatively, like how to eliminate barriers to creativity. And uh, in the process, they also tell the story of Pixar and then uh, Disney, which is uh, super, super exciting. So uh, that's that's a lot of fun to read. So that's what I read at night at the moment. And then um, the book that I read during the day is called um, Doing Bayesian Data Analysis. I'm sorry, this is super pretentious, but I love the book. <laughs> so, so humor me. Basically, one of the problems that I'm having right now is with my uh, solitaire game, I'm getting a lot of analytics data. And I would like to do all kinds of... to. Uh, create all kinds of estimates of things and uh, run A-B tests and uh, see if two cohorts are statistically different, like if I, if I believe they are, they are different and what the, what the probability is that they are. And so for these kinds of questions um, where you're estimating stuff and where you're asking questions about the state of the world, um, where you're trying to estimate a belief about something, that's basically the, the whole field of Bayesian statistics. And, um, I had some, I, I took some statistics classes in uh, university, but they kind of all fell short for various reasons for, um, the kind of practical stuff that I need as a programmer. And this is the book that, like, this is the stuff that I wish they had had in university. Like, it has both the theoretical background as well as, like, the practical, here is how to, here is the, way you model your problems in you you model your parameters and here's the here's how you estimate them so uh, that's really cool and it's really accessible it's not like most math textbooks where you're just like working line by line through huge equations but it's very it's very well explained so what uh, kind of uh, prior knowledge would one have to have to get something out of the book i would say like college level math or maybe even high school math depending on what kind of courses you took. Right, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping out on that high school promise. <laughs> you, I think with like most of the math that you would know as a programmer, you, uh, you should probably be able to get by. Awesome. So yeah, doing Bayesian data analysis. It's really great. Cool. I did some Bayesian stuff in college for my uh, AI class. Yeah, and it's such a natural way to model a lot of practical problems. Yeah. Practical AI kind of problems. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's definitely an interesting way of thinking about some of those problems. 
All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Joe. It, yeah, it this was, was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to talk about. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. It's been fun. Yeah. All right. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. Working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience. Don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. This episode is sponsored by Raygon.io. If at any point your application is crashing, what would that cost you? Lost users, customers, revenue? Raygun is an essential tool for every developer. Raygun takes minutes to integrate, and you'll be notified of your software bugs as they happen with automatic notifications, a full stack trace to detect, diagnose, and fix errors in record time. Raygun works with all major mobile and web programming languages in a matter of minutes. Try it for free today at raygun.io. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.